Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I got to tell you, people, I got to tell you about my newest sponsor. They've been with me all month. It's called Blowfish for Hangovers. And this stuff is a lifesaver, especially during football season. Because if you're in college or pro, you're probably having some cocktails. You may be getting drunk. But after a big night, just wake up, drop two Blowfish tablets in water, and drink it. It's super easy. It tastes great. And it's recognized by the FDA, so you know it works. So here's what you do. Go to 4hangovers.com. That's F-O-R-Hangovers.com. F-O-R-Hangovers.com. Use the promo code COOPER, my last name, and you'll get 20% off your order. Or just look for Blowfish in the pain reliever aisle at CVS. So I'm telling you, this stuff is a, is a lifesaver. If you hate being hungover, you got to get some Blowfish. Follow them on Twitter. Go get them. And that's about that. Anyway, we have a great show, and I just mentioned to my guests that uh, years ago, when I waited tables on Gordon Biersch down there in Burbank, I waited on him in the patio, and he was very, very polite. Because sometimes you get you get customers who are jerks, but he was very, very polite, and he tipped me well. And uh, my guest is Corin Nemec. How you doing, Corin? Oh, I'm doing very well, very well. Uh, good to uh, to speak with you again, I should say. Well, it's funny. Did you used to have a Porsche, or do you have a Porsche? A Porsche? No, I, I did not have a, a Porsche. I've never bought a Porsche. It's, it's not really my style. Okay, because once again, years ago, I thought you, I thought I saw you driving through Burbank in a convertible. Thought it was a Porsche. I may have been wrong. It may have not been you. It was probably Jason Priestley. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so I got to talk to you. So now, now, when did you start acting? I, I know your parents were involved in the biz, and I know you were, I believe born in Arkansas, but were you raised in Arkansas, or how did you start this whole this whole career that you've been working, Is whether it's not acting, you know, uh, producing, graffitiing, when did you, when did you get that creative yeah, like Well, I mean, I, I, my, both my parents growing up uh, were artists in their own, you know, fields. My, uh, my dad uh, began as an architect, and uh was uh, living in Los Angeles where, many years before I moved out there, but he uh, he got into the film business in the I guess it would be the late seventies or possibly early eighties, and uh, became a set designer and later art director and, and finally production designer, um, and uh, has uh, been production designer on on many many uh, major movies, uh, Terminator Two. Patriot Games, The Saint, The Shadow, Ironclad, Black Hat, most recently as well, uh, a bunch, bunch of films. He works all the time, and uh, he's excellent at what he does. And my mom was a graphic designer in um, the music and theater business, so uh, I was raised, uh, you know, around uh, rock concerts and and uh, uh, theater, you know, programs, whether they were musicals or plays or, or whatever, and. Uh, and I, even though I was born in Arkansas, I only lived there until I was about six or so, and then moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where my mom had gotten into uh, uh, the graphic arts field there. And, uh, and so eventually she, she transferred with a company called Niederlander from the Fox Theater to the Pantages in Hollywood in the mid-'80s, which is what brought me to Los Angeles. Now, um, but, uh, now, now since you... Oh, moved- sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say, since you grew up around it, did, did you want to act? I mean, what what drew you to the the biz for you for you personally? Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, I I knew that it, in some in some way I was going to be in the arts and entertainment business. I, I didn't know what what you know what that was going to uh, manifest as, but uh, you know, because for instance, just as an artist, I mean, I was I, I had been drawing my entire life, drawing was really a, uh, you know, my, my first real passion. And, uh, and that's what got me into uh, getting into the graffiti art was really through being into breakdancing and all of that when breakdancing was the hip slipping cool thing to do. So, you know, I, I was in a breaking crew and my breakdancing name was Kid Cruise. And, you know, I would write my breakdancing name and, you know, little bubble letters and stuff with arrows coming out of it. And, <laughs> You know, and eventually when breakdancing became past day, you, they, when, when I started getting introduced more into like, you know, this idea of being able to, you know, to, to paint in large scale on walls and things like that, that's, I, I really inspired me, you know, because uh, it's a, a very interactive kind of uh, an adventurous uh, medium, you know, graffiti art, because uh, it's, it's out in, in, in the public uh, eye. It's not something you do in a, 
in a studio, you know, alone. Uh, so that, that, that was a lot of fun, and I got into the acting, really, because my, my dad worked on the movie Goonies. He was the art director on that. And uh, when I saw that film, I had been on sets with him, and I understood the dynamics of putting together a uh, an adventure like that. And I knew that it was all pretend, but the idea that you could then come back and view yourself you know, from a third party perspective and, and, and actually, you know, witness you living a life that isn't your own, you going on these, this adventure, that to me blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, I can watch myself being somebody else. Like that trip really, that really tripped me out. That's what, that's what kind of inspired me to get into it. So, so I, uh, I, I got into a acting class called, um, uh, Center Stage LA that was run by a, a gentleman named Kevin McDermott that was it's it's been a highly uh, reputable children's acting workshop for decades and uh, and I was about 12 years old then and uh, I got involved in it through my friend David Van Gorder who played Waldo in the Hopper Teacher video by Van Halen okay which uh, <laughs> yeah so we were we were classmates and I was like holy crap you're that guy from the Hopper Teacher video it was like the biggest video you know what I mean, the, the, the previous year, when I, just before I moved out from Atlanta. So I, first thing I, I happens to me when I get to school in, in North Hollywood is uh, one of my classmates is the dude from the Hopper Teacher video. I was that, like, what the, you know? That's so funny. Took me out. That's funny. Cause, yeah, so cause, he, was in, he was involved in that, acting, in that acting workshop, so I got into the acting workshop, and, and within about eight months we did a, a uh, you know, kind of a, a presentation for uh, casting, I mean, for casting directors and managers and agents and whatnot and, you know, whoever wanted to come. And uh, and then, you you know, I, I ended up signing with an agency from that and started auditioning, you know, and then started booking jobs. Yeah. So I really started, you know, professionally at age 12 uh, and uh, began working professionally at age 12. Now, what were some of the first jobs you booked? Were they commercials? I think, didn't you do a lot of commercials when you were younger? I did a good number of commercials, uh, yes. I, the, the first audition I ever had was for a Suzuki motorcycle commercial, and I got the, I got the commercial. It was my first audition and landed the job. It was, uh, it was wild, you know, and, and uh, um, I, I did a, you know, a number of, uh, of commercials um, uh, from that point on. Uh, the, 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 real, the real first, you know, big movie that I did was um, with with Francis Ford Coppola when I was about thirteen, uh, just turning just about turning thirteen. I mean, everything happened so fast; it was pretty incredible, you know. But uh, when when I had uh, turned, you know, around that age, I auditioned for um, uh, uh, Tucker, Tucker, a man in the street. Uh, yeah, and uh, the. Uh, uh, you know, the audition went really well, surprisingly, and I think really what really got me the job was the fact that I looked so much like Jeff Bridges' son. You know what I mean? And uh, and, and I think that really benefited me, <laughs> was the fact that, that I, I actually looked like I could I could really be, uh, you know, his son. So, um, were you were you intimidated at all? I mean, when you, when you got the part, because Coppola is such a big name, Jeff Bridges is a big actor you know you've been doing commercials i know you had done some uh webster episodes i believe before that but this is a no no a webster i did after okay. that actually what came later uh previous to that i had only done um an episode of sidekicks with ernie reyes jr um and uh and i had done another commercial uh i can't remember if it was i did a number of mcdonald's commercials i, I did actually me and paul walker did a uh a Coke commercial together when we were about 14. God. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that we shot out on, on, uh, Catalina Island. And it was a huge Coke commercial. It played during the, uh, uh, they premiered the Coke commercial during the Super Bowl of 1986, I believe, or 87, one of the two. But my uncle was actually down in the Caribbean on vacation watching the Super Bowl at the, at the bar, you know, at the, at whatever resort he was at. And he's there, and he looks up, and suddenly the commercial comes on. He's like, he's like, that's my nephew. You know what I mean? <laughs> Everyone's like, yeah, you're full of crap. That's like, have another drink. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, he was totally tripping out. So, uh, so that, 
you know, he's, he's been my biggest fan ever since. So what was it like uh, though, working with Coppola? Like going on, I mean, you're inexperienced. It's a big, it's a big movie. And, and that was a big movie. I remember when Tucker came out. It wasn't like, you know, there's small movies, but that was a big budget movie. And, and you know, Jack Bridges was still as hot as Chris always been hot. What is it like for you being a kid and all of a sudden being on this... Uh, you know, I, I, fortunately, I was just young enough to not really get the uh, the significance of it. Uh, it really wasn't until years later when I became far more of a uh, uh, of a fan of filmmaking. You know, not just you know being a kid that grew up watching some movies and being on some sets. I didn't. It didn't. It didn't. You know, I didn't know. Uh, I, I understood because people around me were telling me that what I was involved in was a big deal. But from my perspective, I didn't understand, you know, the the exact magnitude of that project and the people I was working with. So it wasn't until many years later, when I was more of a young adult, that I looked back on it and realized what an incredible, you know, experience uh, it, that it was, you know, to work with with such such a uh, uh, a fantastic director and and such a, uh, a, a an incredible cast. You know, it, it was uh, it was a trip. I mean, you know, that was, I think that was Christian Slater's first film too, uh, and uh, playing his you know his younger brother. That was I mean that his career his as after that was just meteoric. You know, and uh, and it was so cool to know that. You know that I was that I was there with him working with Martin Landau. You know what it, what what a uh, uh, what a career that guy has had. You know, and having that opportunity and, and Frederick Forster, who you know who I didn't know at the time, but became one of my favorite performances in Apocalypse Now. But I hadn't seen Apocalypse Now at that age. You know, so uh, I didn't see Apocalypse Now for the first time until I was like sixteen or so. You know. And then, then I was like, wow, I worked with that director. That's crazy. And there's Frederick. I mean, I was like, dude, this is, you know. <laughs> and uh, it was, yeah, it was a trip. And, uh, you know, and Jeff Bridges, it was, uh, I ended up running into him. I was going down to Mexico for a vacation when I was like 19 or something or 20. And I'm standing in line at, at the airport in Mexico uh, down in Cabo San Lucas, and and I see this guy in this really cool hat in front of me with his family and everything, you know, family, and and he kind of turns around and glances, and it was Jeff Bridges. I was like, what? I was like, Dad. He looked at me like I was crazy, you know. And then he recognized me. He was like, Oh, what's up? That's he funny. Gave me a big hug, and it was, a, it was a trip. It was a trip, you know. But I was like, Dude, how many people in the world can you know walk up behind Jeff Bridges and, and get a hug? Right, I know exactly. Especially nowadays, geez, people are so crazy. But so now, now you 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 sit there and this movie's done. Now, are you getting buzz? I mean, because you know, I know then did Webster come as a result of this movie, or how did you start yeah, it branching up? Did and 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 Webster really Webster was an offer only situation. I didn't audition for it. It was it all kind of came about and. Realistically, I don't think that it was the right choice for me uh, in my career at that time when I in, in, when I look back on it. But uh, but the you know I was really really talked into it by my agents uh, and and representatives at the time. And and I understand that from their perspective, it was a financial. It was really more of a financial choice because the, that that TV show was on it was on its final season and on its last legs and you know, was was really waning in terms of its writing. It wasn't in front of a studio audience anymore. Mam and George hated each other in real life. You know, it was it was not a pleasant experience as an actor to work on, you know, uh, as well. But, uh, but you know, that said, uh, the, you know, what really, what really got me over the hump, you know, after having made the choice to, to work on that show was having done the TV special, uh, What's Alan Watching, that uh, was Eddie Murphy Productions, uh, Tommy Schlamme, one of the uh, uh, writer-producers from the original Saturday Night Live, was, the, was I mean, uh, uh, Tommy Schlamme directed it, and, um, and uh, oh gosh, his name's put in my mind now, but one of the original writers and producers from Saturday Night Live wrote and, and created it, and it was supposed to be a TV series, but we only did the one-off, but but it was a great, it's what got me Parker Lewis, uh, the, 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 um, Clyde Phillips and Lon Diamond, uh, and, and Robert Lewis, they, they all 
you know, were huge fans of that TV special when it came out, and uh, they were just developing and creating Parker Lewis at that time, which was actually before uh, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off even came out as a movie. So people always compare Parker Lewis to it, but I actually know for a fact that, that they were in development on it previous to that movie ever coming out. So it's more evident that, uh, you know, that, that, that there was similarities there. Well, I was but, gonna... uh, but anyway... You know, I did that, and then I did I Know My First Name is Steven, yeah, and I was gonna, I was uh, that got me an Emmy nomination. Yeah, what? And, uh, and, that, and that's really what kind of, like, gave me some, some real stability and legs in the industry. Well, do you ever think back that, you know, when you did that movie, it was 1989, and no one really talked about that subject. That was, I mean, you know, it sounds weird to say, you know, it's groundbreaking, but no one, I mean, people didn't talk about that. And what was it like for you to play, it's coming off, like, comedies except for, you know, Tucker wasn't a comedy, but what was it like for you to play such a heavy role? And what was it like when you got that call that you got an Emmy nomination? Because you're still a newbie. I mean, you've done some commercials, you've done some work, but to get an Emmy nomination at that age, I mean, did it just blow your mind? And, and did you get a phone call from your agent saying, hey, you got the Emmy or the Emmy nomination? How does that, how did that happen? I understood that, that you know that, that, that there was that there was a big push to get me the nomination that, that, that you know, I mean, I, I worked with an acting teacher named John Lynn uh, for a number of weeks at the start of the production on on uh, our first season, and, and we're really you're cutting out. What you're, you're cutting oh, out? I, 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 I'm sorry. Um, maybe it's my reception. I said I worked with a, a gentleman named John Lynn, who was an acting teacher uh, for several weeks in the lead up to the production of I know my first name is Stephen and. Uh, and he he really introduced me to a much deeper level of of, uh, of understanding a character and developing a character and breaking down a script. Because my previous uh, um, teachers that I had worked with in, in acting before that was more you know uh, more more geared towards teaching young minds. You know what I mean? Not not really mature minds and. Uh, and so he was, you know, this, this was this was someone who probably rarely worked with kids, <laughs> you know, as an acting uh, as an acting instructor. And he really opened me up to, uh, you know, understanding, you know, what what it is to to, to really create a character. And, uh, and and so when I walked on set, I was really really well rehearsed, um, and uh, and it was it was pretty it was pretty much a breeze. There there was only a few. Uh, difficult scenes that that uh, that I had to that I had to really uh, you know work hard for um, emotionally, but outside of that, it was it was kind of a cakewalk. Um, Larry Ellican, the director of that, who uh, always walked around with a cigar in his mouth and and with and and with a uh, you know a uh, nicotine soaked beard, you know what I mean? He he would uh, he'd always come over to me and he'd be like, Corin. Are you ready for the scene? You know, it's a very emotional scene here. You know, are you going to be ready for this? You know, this is because I, I would always be like so casual around set. I'm not a method actor, so I didn't walk around in some kind of particular mood in order to, you know, maintain that. But I, I and and it was a it was a, a constant uh, uh, struggle for him to like you know to, to be to be nervous of, of whether or not I was prepared or not. And I was like, oh, don't worry, we are well prepared. And uh, and it was a great experience, great work experience. Uh, and and eventually, Larry Elkin started uh, coming over to me, and instead he'd be like, "So, Corin, you know this is a comedy, right?" <laughs> and uh, he'd be like, "Oh, you know, I want you to really punch up the funny moments." And uh, and that's that's when we really started having having a uh, a good creative time working on it, uh, even though it was a dark subject, because you have to keep some brevity there uh, with subjects like that, otherwise. You know, it could become too intense, and and, uh, and that whole world of uh, of child, uh, uh, you know, child abuse and 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 molestation and all of that, it, it is a very touchy subject that even to this day is rarely touched upon because it's it's so it's so dark. You know, the the uh, the average person just does not want to confront that that particular reality. There's so many other realities that we see all the time. You know, rape, murder, torture—you know, all kinds of, of of horrible realities that we see all the time. 
on television and we and we pay it almost no mind and are are, are you know really numb to it but when that subject matter comes up it always sends a shudder through the room you know so uh i think it's something that that that, that really needs to be addressed in in a new unit of time you know you, again you think it works i mean you think your movie came out in 1989 and there's there's some exactly. there's some things but now it's seems to be more expressed in 2020 or Dateline or now with the John Bonet Ramsey thing, all these documentaries, but they never really just make movies about it. And, like, and plus, the TV movie used to be so popular. The TV movie's not really. You don't see. I mean, that was a big thing. The ABC, you know, after school I special. Think they have, I, yeah, I, I and I, and you know, I gotta say, in 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 seeing mainstream television nowadays, I think they're missing out on a real big market there. I think that there's a huge market for t- TV movies and, and miniseries. Uh, Again, especially with the you know a short short attention span theater that uh, that that the world has today, you know less is more. You know what I mean? I don't even think you need to do twenty two or twenty six episodes per season of a show anymore. I think ten episodes or twelve episodes is more than enough these uh, these days. You know? Yeah, I mean that's why HBO does that and Showtime does it, and then you you watch it and you're like, okay, and and it's easier it's easier to binge watch when there's ten episodes because you're not sitting there going. Oh my God! I'm I'm four seasons behind. I have to watch 92 episodes to catch up. It's that's that's very intimidating when you want to watch a show that everybody raves about. Yeah, and it's a, and it's you know I think the less the less is more kind of uh, approach is is always good because if you have a really good product and you deliver a smaller amount of it, then then, then the chances are that the people who who like that product are going to come back in droves. You know, in order to get you know whatever, but it, but if you give them tons of that product, they may get kind of burnt out on it. Now, talking about product and series, you got Parker Lewis. Now, was that a long audition process? Because you know, you said you had, you had an Emmy nomination. They had seen you in the movie, uh, another movie that's supposed to be a series. How did that work out? Was there a long process? Or did well, my. No, my, my, I mean, my, my, my recollection of it, you know, and, and, and everybody's memory is, you know, is subjective and subjective to the, you know, their own perception of, of, of their, own, their own lives. But the way that I remember it all unfolding was because of what's Alan watching, you know, they, they, they wanted me for it, you know, from the beginning. And I, and I recall having turned down the, the prospect of, of even doing the show because I thought that it was a, a half-hour multi-camera sitcom like like uh, Webster was. And I had a terrible experience uh, on Webster and found that, that, that the, the style of writing of sitcom was very difficult for me to do comedically. I'm good at doing comedy, but I, but I come from a more organic kind of comedic place, you know, that... that 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 kind of you know situational comedy, not necessarily dialogue driven comedy, you know, and uh, where where it's like it's the line line joke factor. It's like one person says one thing, one person says you know the setup, the you know then the then the you know the the middle part, and then the the, the, the punchline, and it's always like that on these shows. And so there's a, a timing to it that, that you, a rhythm to it that you have to keep up with. It's that's quite exhausting, you know, and um, and so. I turned it down uh, on numerous occasions, so I don't know if I was supposed to audition for it or not. But I ended up not auditioning for it. I ended up going in and having a general meeting with all the creators, and they explained to me, you know, that, that they wanted that, that it was a single camera show. They were shooting it like a film, and that it was going to be done in the style of the movie Three O'Clock High with Casey Shimosko, which was an incredible film. Love that movie, and it was just it was just so yeah so. The cinematic style of Parker Lewis is an exact copy of, of what you saw in in, uh, in Three O'clock High, and uh, I mean exact copy of it. You know they they duplicated it very well. And when they explained that to me, I was like, oh well, that's a whole different story. You know what I mean? I was under the assumption of something very different. So I I, I came aboard the project, you know, uh, and and did I did audition with. Uh, all the uh, the other actors that were that were in the in the final running for uh, the other characters, um, you know, on uh, on the show. So you know, I did do I did read in the room with all of the guys and all of that. And I think that if if I if I was not doing a good job, you know, uh, in the room playing Parker Lewis, 
you know, reading opposite the other actors they likely would have recast. So, in a, in a way, I did audition for it, you know. Now, now Fox was in its early years then. Yeah, we, it was their first time going with a full lineup, you know, before they didn't have a full lineup, and this was their, their big launch to a full lineup. So we were one of their, you know, first shows that they were launching with. And uh, uh, it wasn't, you know, at the end of second season was when Rupert Murdoch purchased Fox, and all the executives got let go, and a whole new tier of executives were put into place, and then they they uh, they saw the, the the ratings difference between nine hundred two one zero, which which uh, and and our show, uh, and they they thought that, that they needed to make our show more like nine hundred two one zero. But they're basing this on Nielsen ratings, and the nine hundred two one zero was 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 uh, was on during the week, and it was on a you know on a school night, and was a show that was was generally watched by the whole family. It wasn't all. It wasn't just driven show our show was on Sunday night early evening and was was primarily watched by uh, by teens and college age kids and kids without uh, uh, the Nielsen boxes attached to the television because by the by the early 90s most most households had two TVs one for the adults one for the kids so you know they, there, there was no way that they would have known what our true ratings were so we, we did a bunch of college tours doing publicity for our show uh, during the early years, and it was insane the, the response that we were getting, showing up at these colleges, doing college radio stations and and local media in, the, in those areas, and and it was just like it was it was obvious that that our ratings weren't you know showing what what the true viewership was. But but anyway, long story short, they they decided that they they needed to alter our show and make it more like nine hundred two one zero. That's why our third season became. An extremely different show. Parker Lewis lost his his hitness. He became, you know, uh, uh, shacked up with a single girlfriend. Uh, the the chief nemesis next to the principal Lemmer disappeared from the show. Uh, you know, the whole thing toned down completely. You know, uh, a lot all the effects toned down. The cameras, the angles, everything did. And and that was really the nail in the coffin. Then they started moving us around from one night to another and. And, uh, and it was kind of, uh, you know, you kind of saw the writing on the wall that, that it was coming to an end. And it was really unfortunate because uh, I think that if they had let us just continue doing what we were doing, they would have seen that we could have gotten at least five to seven seasons out of that show, you know. Now, now, what was it like, though, for you the first, like, two years? Because you're the star. Of the, I mean, you're, you're Parker Lewis. And they always had, you always had great shirts. It's <laughs> Your wardrobe, you always had those cool shirts. Did people start recognizing you? And you must have been sworn by girls because your character's cool. You're a good-looking guy. How did your life change? I mean, did you notice all of a sudden that people were noticing you and recognizing you? And as you said, when you went to those colleges, well, it must have been bedlam for you. You must have had, like, because you're a cool guy on the show, you must have had, like, guys and girls just swarming you. At times, there was there, there were moments like that, but those mainly those PR tours are are so fast and and they're so they're, there's so much that you have to do in a day and in an evening, and you know there's really not a lot of time you know to you know to actually go and and be around, but you know much you know, so so you would really see the the crowds like when you would do. Uh, like a campus talk, or you'd be going to the campus to do the, the 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 college radio station, and you'd have you know a crowd of people who are like you know just trying to check out what's going on. See, what, you know what I mean? People who are fans of the show that are just trying to act like they're not you know they're not trying to catch a, a glimpse of who's there to do the show. You know, pretending like pretending like you know a hundred students are all studying right in front of the, the college radio station is a normal thing, right? <laughs> But uh, but it was a, it was a trip. It was definitely a trip. But in the bubble of Hollywood, was like you didn't really get get a, a, a drift of what you know of what that notoriety was like. Because in the bubble of Hollywood, you know you, the, the social the social scene that 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 uh, I was in that, that that all my friends were in was filled with people who had done plenty of different types of of things that were you know known and they were successful at what they were doing or were doing creative things or you know i mean just from the graffiti scene alone is is you know how i met many of of, of my friends that were 
became actors, successful actors, or were acting, like David Arquette, you know, was uh, a very well-known and well-respected graffiti artist in the 80s, and, and Balthazar Getty was another one, and uh, uh, Seth Benzer, who was uh, the lead singer from Crazy Town, okay. the band Crazy Town, he, he was uh, one of my friends in high school, he was in the graffiti art scene, and and Yeshi Pearl, who is Mickey Avalon, he's a, a well-known alternative rap artist. Uh, he's he I know him through the graffiti scene, and I mean, there's it just the list goes on, and it's it's pretty impressive how that that street culture, you know, was uh, was a factor in uh, in the you know in the scene that uh, that stretched beyond the streets into the entertainment world, you know, and uh, and it was uh, it was a really uh, uh, wild time, you know, a really wild time. Now, for you, because you had this cool group of friends, and you also had the graffiti, were you after Parker Lewis ended, and because the the show went a different way than what you were used to? As I said, you know, you were used to the first two years, and they do it at Beverly Nine Hundred One Hundred Two and Zero. Were you bummed when the show left? Or were you sort of like when it ended, or were you sort of like, you know what, I can. Uh, it wasn't going my way anymore. I didn't like where it was going. I'm ready to branch out. Well, yeah, we knew. I mean, it was kind of like there was that feeling uh, all of season three that there was that that some you know that, that something was rotten in Denmark. You know what I'm saying? There was just too many, too many, you know, uh, hard charge changes coming from the top tier executive level at the at the at the network that was forcing our hand and really making the the production of the third season you know uh not as fun and enjoyable as the first two as well so there was there was a lot you know it was the, the one thing that i that that i did do that was smart was that at, you know every hiatus instead of taking the hiatus off i would make sure that i did a you know some type of dramatic movie of the week so you know each year even though the show was on i had a uh, a movie of the week, you know, on, you know, CBS or a movie of the week on NBC or, you know, so I was keeping my, my, uh, uh, my dramatic acting, you know, out there and keeping that up. And, uh, and, and that was certainly a lifesaver because there was, you know, the, and still is a, a kind of uh, a hangover from the, 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 the portrayal of Parker Lewis. Uh, at least within the industry, you know, you kind of get categorized with all of the other 80s uh, child stars, even though our show didn't come on until the 90s. <laughs> but, you know, you get just categorized and jumbled into that whole, you know, group. And, and you know, I, I just felt not necessarily that I was different than any of them, you know, because I'm not differentiating myself from other, from, from people who are just professionally working as actors. But the one thing that I did do was I maintained you know, a, a close relationship with, uh, with, um, theater companies and, and acting workshops and, and continued studying even up through the days on Parker Lewis and, uh, and after Parker Lewis, you know, transferring into a, a company called, uh, American Repertory Company, which was, uh, directed by Manu Tupo, who was just an incredible, uh, actor, uh, and, and he was, uh, a senior member of the actor studio and had studied with Uta Hagen and, and, uh, and, and, and Stella Adler and, and, you know, many of the, the originators of, of, of the new, um, methods of, of acting, uh, that were introduced in New York, you know, back in the day in the, in the, in the fifties. And, uh, and, you know, so this, this, this guy was, I studied with him for 11 years until I was in my thirties and, uh, until he passed away really. And, and so, you know, I, that saying that closely connected the, uh, to that world, to what the reason I started acting was, was was essential because it's easy to get um, to get things misconstrued when you're inside the bubble. You know, if you start believing your own media, if you start believing your own hype, uh, the the ego can play games with your mind and and have you you know uh, or ha have you behaving as if you're you're a star or as if you're you know a celebrity or as, instead of just being an actor. You know, like my teacher always was, was constantly counted into our heads. It's like, you're not an actor. You know, the only time you're an actor is when you're acting. So if you're wandering through life thinking that you're an actor, you're lying to yourself because you can't be an actor unless you're acting. So if you're out in life acting, then you're not being, then you're not behaving. 
you know, so you can't be an actor, you know, but you can act. Right. And, uh, and, and so it was a, it was a, it was a real trip. He, he, you know, I met him just at the right time because coming off of Parker Lewis, it was, there was definitely that, you know, kind of holy, you know, crap moment. You know, what do I do? Where, where, where do we go from here? But I knew that I would work. I just didn't, you know, I, I had just had a, a, a child, you know, uh, uh, and, uh, my ex, my now ex-wife, you know, uh, who became my wife, uh, after, after our daughter was born. But she, you know, I was like, you know, now I have a kid. Like, this is like no joke. I can't just, you know, it's not, it's the, the, I don't have the freedom to go, okay, cool. I'm going to take the money I've made from this. I'm going to go back to college and I'm going to, you know, learn that, you know, like Troy Slayton, who played Jerry Steiner on Parker Lewis, you know, he took the money from the show and he kept acting here and there doing his thing, but he went to UCLA and, and got a criminal law degree and now is a very successful criminal defense attorney and, uh, and still a, a very good friend of mine. And, uh, and, you know, so, so he, he took, you know, what, you know, the, the, uh, the, the money and success that he had at a young age and he folded that into, you know, a far more reliable career than, you know, pursuing a, a career in the arts and entertainment industry, which is, which is really a, uh, it's a very, very tough world to survive in, you know, long term, you know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's ups and downs. I mean, I, I get that with all my guests all the time. You know, you, you come off a series, but then when you were lucky, I mean, now, did you shoot The Stand after Parker Lewis, or was that one of your hiatus shows? No, The Stand, yeah, that came after Parker Lewis. I think that was about a year and a half or so after the uh, after the show ended uh, when I got that job, and I was so excited for that, you know. I mean, it was, you know, it, it, that, that was something that, that I, I just, I, I was... I did not think in a million years I was going to get the part because I didn't I didn't match at all the description of the character. But uh, fortunately for me, um, unbeknownst to me, I had auditioned a number of years earlier for a film called Sleepwalkers uh, that uh, that Mick Garris directed, who had also was the director on um, on the stand, and he he really wanted me for Sleepwalkers because he thought that I did a performance that was. That, that was right for the, the, the part, but they, they didn't think that I had the physical attributes of the character. So come full circle, now we're at this, doing the stand and the character Harold Louder is written as like, you know, an obese 300 plus pound, uh, uh, you know, young, uh, uh, young adult. And, I, and I'm, and I'm skinny, you know what I mean? And so I was like, well, they want me to read for it. So I'll go read for it. Cause apparently they had read, as many people that, that, that looked like the, the, the character as possible and they couldn't find anybody that, that, that could play the character like they wanted. And, and Mick Garris kept telling uh, uh, Stephen King that, that he believed I could do it and they finally brought me in and I did the audition and, and they, they offered me the part. I was beside myself. I was like, I, I, this is so right for me, but I'm so wrong for it. You know what I mean? <laughs> But uh, but they they uh, they gave me the chance to do it and and it was just it's one of my favorite uh, jobs that I've ever had, had the opportunity to work on and again what a cast you know oh yeah Gary's- to work with with all of those uh, you know Gary Sinise Rob Lowe uh, Molly Ringwald you know Ruby D Laura San Giacomo I mean the list just goes on the the uh, the actors that were on that and getting to work personally with Stephen King was incredible you know and. You- and uh, and then even, I mean, thinking back, uh, even along those lines, I did a, a film when I was 17 called Solar Crisis, which was a large-budget sci-fi feature that didn't turn out that well. Uh, but it was a huge budget. And, and I got to work with, you know, Peter Boyle and Jack Palance and Charlton Heston, you know. And, and, and it was, I was just like, this is, when I look back on the, and, and then I was old enough to realize, wow, I'm working with, with Moses. Right. You know, I, I knew, you know what I mean? Like, I was like, this is some cool shit. You know, uh, and, uh, I was very, very excited about that. Um, and, and Jack Palance as well. I was very familiar with who he was. I, and Peter Boyle from One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest. I was totally familiar with who he was. And, uh, you know, and I was just, you know, and looking back, I've, I've had the opportunity over these years to really work with some, some fantastic actors, you know, uh, uh, and, um, uh, just, I, I'm just so blessed that, that, that I've had those opportunities, uh, you know, along the way. 
Well, you, you had said about the sci-fi world, and now the sci-fi world is so big because conventions and stuff like that. You ended up being on Stargate, which also had a huge following. So you, it seems like, you know, Parker Lewis had a cult following. The Stand, most people watched it, and Stephen King has a following. Then, you know, down the road, you end up on Stargate. What was that like to get in that, in that role? And then that's another show, as I said. These shows have this really cool following. How did you end up getting on Stargate? And did, you, did that introduce you to a whole new fan base? Yeah, it's, it's definitely introduced me to a whole new fan base uh, and has been uh, really just an, an incredible experience uh, uh, across the board. Um, I, I really got it because I was in, I was you know in the right place at the right time. Uh, I was at MGM corporate headquarters in LA uh, auditioning for something totally different, and the casting directors for Stargate passed by you know where I was sitting. Uh, reading for for a totally different casting company, you know, in a different building, but they just passed by, and I I had auditioned for them many times over the years for other projects, and just hadn't read for them in a long time, and uh, and and we just started having a conversation, and and they just like were like, hey, you know, we just got the breakdown for Stargate, this could be right for you, and and uh, and it uh, it just turned it turned out. It, it turned out in my favor that time, you know, it was great. I, I would have loved to have been able to do the show a bit longer than, than my character did do the show, but, uh, but you know, I, I was afforded the opportunity to do a really memorable role that has resonated with the fan base, you know, as if I was on all of the seasons, you know. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's been pretty incredible. Now, do you get that convention gig now because people know the show and because of your cast for your work and you also did Supernatural do you do you hit the convention circuit because it seems I like do some I, I don't have I don't have uh, you know a convention agent so you know there, there's there's not many that I do um, nowadays I, I'm sure that if uh, you know that, that I could probably do more but uh, but I, I do some. Uh, I'm actually going over to Switzerland uh, next month to, to do one. I I, I tend to, to do uh, conventions outside of the country more than inside the country for some reason. But uh, but that's fine with me because I, I I don't mind the travel and adventure. Now you're acting. You know you're on these different shows. Now tell me about the, uh, the I believe it was a web series, Starving. How did that come about? Well, starving, you know, me and David Faustino uh, have been friends for many years uh, since we were, you know, teenagers, and uh, and we have a long history together, especially both being on Fox, you know, at the same time, and uh, and the child star syndrome and all of that, and and we we had been uh, developing some some uh, some projects that uh, we had a, a small production company together with a partner of ours, uh, and. Uh, we uh, we had done a project. One of our first projects that we produced and, and created and developed was with Neil Strauss, and it was uh, a MySpace original. It was, it was uh, produced and, and, and financed by MySpace and 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 Harper Collins. And we did uh, he, his book Rules of the Game, which was like a, a how-to handbook for graffiti art. I mean, for uh, for pickup artists. Um, and we we did a competition series for him that was that was. Uh, a promotional tool for his book as well that actually was huge. It got well over 5 million views on, on MySpace time. And, uh, and it, it was shocking to, to, to see that MySpace within several years after that was pretty much gone. <laughs> but, uh, but, but that, that, uh, that, that gave us some credibility as a production company and all that. And, and, uh, and we had been shopping a, a, a number of, uh, of projects, film projects and TV projects around, that were, you know, highly scripted and, and all of that and, uh, and really weren't getting any traction. And then the, the, the TV show, The Two Corys, had come out and we just couldn't believe it. We're like, you know, and, and, and I knew uh, uh, both of them uh, somewhat back in the day, even though we, we hung out in very different social groups. You know, I, I had known both of them uh, in, in a peripheral kind of uh, uh, manner. And... Uh, and so, you know, we, we, we just were like, wow, these guys got like their own reality show or whatever. We're like, you know, re really what we should do is like, because we know that when we would go and pitch, you know, shows uh, to the networks, the networks would, uh, would 
many times pitch back to us, you know, their version of what they wanted to do with us. You know what I'm saying? And we were just like, if we do their version, you know, of what they want to do, we'll just be, we'll be destroyed. It'll, it'll ruin us. Right. And our partner, Todd Bringawat, he was like, he was like, you know what? If, if, if they want to ruin us so bad, if they want to like make complete asses out of you guys so bad, and they don't want to do a legitimate, you know, scripted comedy with you guys, they want to just do some, you know, 80s, you know, throwback, you know, uh, soft, soft scripted reality show. Let's just do our version of that. And we came up with the idea of, you know, Corin Nemec and David Faustino uh, living together in a, in a rundown Hollywood Hills house, trying to get their careers back. And uh, and we shot a, a presentation for it that was really hilarious. Uh, Ed O'Neill was gracious enough um, to work with us on that. One of our writer producers on the show, Sam Cass, was a was a good friend of Ed O'Neill's, as as of course um, Faustino was. And uh, and uh, Sam Cass was was a writer producer from Seinfeld and a bunch of other great shows, and and was a, was a brilliant comedic uh, is a brilliant comedic mind, and he he was part of our creative team, uh, and and so we shot the, the presentation for it, and we took that out, and and I tell you, you know, we came so close to selling it to a major network so many times, and it was just so far fetched that like. They just kept passing on it, and finally we went to alternative media outlets and, and pitched it to, to you know the, uh, over at Sony Television for Crackle Network, and uh, and they ended up picking it up finally, and they gave us a really strong budget for it, and and we and we delivered what we thought was was really really hilarious rated R, you know, uh, no holds barred comedy. Uh, unfortunately for us, we offended some of the executives at Sony Television. Uh, we, we, we didn't have, uh, like by the time we delivered our final episode, uh, for whatever reason, our content was offensive to a number of the executives and they stopped championing us. Um, uh, which I was very shocked by because they, they had script approval on every script. So that's when I realized they likely didn't read any of them. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, so... You know, they, they stopped championing the show, even though it was a massive uh, success for the launch of Crackle. It, it just delivered it delivered a, a, a huge viewership for them, and uh, and it wasn't pursued any further. But uh, and in fact, you can't even find it online anymore. See, that sucks. Uh, it's that not, sucks. It's not even on Hulu. It's nowhere. It's just it's non-existent, and it's a it's it's very strange. I don't know if that's because we had a huge ad rev share deal with. Uh, with Sony TV that they pulled it because they don't want to pay anybody, but that could be that could be why. <laughs> so now you, you did that. Now how did you end up on Supernatural? Because once again, another show with a huge cult following. I had I had a friend of mine was on the show, Lex Medlin, and he played a Cupid in a diaper. And you know you think that's not a big role, and then he said his wife noticed on in social media he was getting all these messages from. French girls, and he goes. Um, he, his idea was, he goes. I guess French girls like chubby guys in diapers, but it has that like that follow. That's hilarious. How did Supernatural go? I mean, how did you get that? And then did you see some Twitter Twitter jumps off that? Because people really love that show. I, I just auditioned for it. You know, it just came through as an audition, and I went in and read for it, and uh, and 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 got the job. Uh, you know, so that that's that's it was really as simple as that. Um, so I can't, you know, I mean, that that, that, that just worked out just in, in a really organic way. Now, did you start seeing a different fan base? People going, oh, yeah, because I said it seems to draw a lot of young fans. Well, surprisingly, the, the, the largest fan base for Supernatural is is 30-plus uh, women, uh, uh, single and married. The, that's their that's their strongest fan base. It's almost the same fan base that that, uh, that soap operas had in the eighties. <laughs> so that, that's cool. So you got you got a whole new group of fans, though. Yeah, no, it's, it's great, and uh, and you know that show. Uh, it's it, it's a really really good show. Uh, very well produced, very well written. Uh, the 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 acting on on it is is really uh, up to par, and the the directing. Uh, everything about it, it's, it's, it's 
it's an extremely well produced show, and uh, and it was uh, it's it's always great to to have the opportunity to uh, to be involved in you know in in high end uh, shows like that. Now these days, how are you still? involved in the graffiti art world because you've been around for a long time and you know it through people like Banksy and stuff like that graffiti art has become more commercial have you I mean how have you developed as a graffiti artist and are you still very active doing that and is it you know as you get older is it not as fun because I'm sure when you were younger you were doing some renegade stuff because you always see you know you see graffiti it's so funny you see graffiti sometimes in the most insane places and you look and you go how the hell did they get there and not get caught? Well, you know, for for what it's worth, like you know, I mean, I I, I was still uh, going and painting murals at graffiti yards during the time period I was on Parker Lewis as well, and uh, uh, and most of the graffiti yards were were ones that were like they they weren't legal, you know, but they but they were kind of uh, overlooked by by the law, so to speak, because they were they were not seen from the street. You know, these are walls down train tracks or, you know, uh, uh, you know, way down in, you know, in the backs of some deep alleys or whatever, you know, just places where the cops are like, fine, you can paint there. Just don't just don't bring it to the street, you know, kind of deal. And uh, so, I mean, I was still involved uh, uh, for sure. Um, I I did get get more into journalistic style photography for, for quite a while in my 20s. Uh, but I never, I never left, uh, you know, the graffiti culture or or the or graffiti art, uh, the art form uh, behind, and uh, and then ended up connecting up with one of my one of the guys from the graffiti crew that I was in when I was a teenager, when I was uh, in my early thirties, and uh, and we started painting together again a lot, and uh, and that's really when when I got, you know, that that reignited my love and passion for. Uh, for the art form and for the 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 culture and for the experience and uh, and then as the as the art forms uh, uh, started to develop and and the the uh, uh, the idea the well the style of stencil art and uh, or medium of stencil art and and poster art uh, became you know popularized it, it really a lot of my friends who were 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 from the old school graffiti art scene were not a, not really embracing this new art form and uh and me and uh, some of my friends decided that we would go the opposite way and and totally embrace it and compete in the in in that world you know so uh it's it's been a lot of fun because now I'm not I don't just you know paint graffiti art uh I'm, I also you know, understand the the uh, the stencil art and the you know the the dynamics of poster art. So I've gotten in more into graphic art design work uh, versus uh, versus sketching and and painting. Uh, so it's it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. I, I I in the last couple of years I've been developing with a business partner of mine um, a company called Planet Street. Uh, we have a a kind of a, a beta phase site set up right now called planetstreet.com that you can go and check out. And it's, uh, you know, it's going to be a, um, uh, a site that is a media site for graffiti, uh, not just the graffiti culture, but the, the, uh, the urban art scene culture, which, which, uh, which embraces graffiti art as well as many other kinds of, uh, of, of, of aspects of, of the, of the urban culture from street foods to street sports to anything else in, in that, you know, will all fall under the same umbrella. But, uh, but right now we're launching with graffiti and street art as our, as our primary focus. And, uh, and, and we'll be developing that into a merchandising, uh, uh, site as well, where you can, where you can get original art from the artists that you, uh, you know, that, that you like or, you know, from, uh, from the street culture. Now on your Twitter, the Sid Lives picture is that yours? Yes, I painted that. Now where'd you paint it at? And then it just because that's that... actually on the back of a of a very famous um, punk rock clothing store uh, on Melrose Avenue in Hollywood. Um, it's uh, it's been around since the eighties, and it's been the place to go to get your Doc Martens or your Creepers or you know, your Sex Pistols shirts or, you know, your suspenders or whatever the case may be. 
and uh, and the the back area of uh, you know the, the, that area of Melrose had always been known to be rather grungy, but uh, but the, the the back area of their store was really uh, run down and and tagged up and uh, and in bad shape, and so. Uh, uh, having had a few conversations with the uh, with the owner and having painted a number of murals around the area, uh, was able to get get the entire backside of their store. So, you know, there's a it's, it, there's a lot of murals back there that I was involved in that, uh, that I'm, uh, I'm very proud of, and that's definitely one of them. And the fact that it's on the back of a of a uh, uh, you know iconic store there in Hollywood, it kind of goes along with it. You know what I mean? It's 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 it, it becomes sort of uh, part of the city landscape, you know. That store, you know, you know that store with the giant Sid Vicious mural on the back. Right. <laughs> like, you know, that, that's what I want people to say. How long did that take you to paint? Um, that didn't actually. It, it, it was it, it was a little quicker than than expected, but uh, I, I got uh, I got some because it's a difficult space to paint. It's on a second story. Uh, on a on a small kind of uh, there's a, there's not a lot of space up there to put your ladder and it's really high it's a really tall it's it's probably you know uh, 15 feet high or, or more uh, and uh, so it's deceptive in the photo you can't tell you know w- what it's like but it's sketchy to paint up there so I had a buddy of mine uh, who goes by the name Dirk Cobain uh, he uh, he helped me get that uh, get it all filled in and everything so we were able to complete the whole thing in about six hours now are you still actively uh, doing the graffiti art or are you just concentrating more on that website yeah I have a I mean I have a number of murals waiting for me back in LA uh, I, I live uh, um, you know a lot of the year in Texas but uh, um, I, I have a number of projects that uh, that when I get back out to LA in November I'll be I'll be working on uh, as far as murals go and some really uh, really prime locations. So I'm 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 excited about that. So you're in Texas, but, now. Uh, but you know, yeah, I, I, I live in Texas. I, I my uh, my ex wife, you know, this is where she, she really wanted to raise kids, and I don't blame her. I thought it was a great idea. So you know, this is where our daughter was raised, and uh, we had a son together as well. So uh, you know, I, I just felt like this was there's there's a much better opportunity to have a, a more normal kind of upbringing here in Texas than uh, than the experience that I had in Los Angeles for sure and uh, and Los Angeles in general is it's a whole different uh, culture you know than uh, than uh, the suburbs of, of Texas okay and, and did you acclimate fine when you moved down there well, yeah, because I grew up in Arkansas and Georgia, you know, uh, up until I was, uh, you know, 11 or so years old. So that, that first 11 years, that's a lot of, uh, that's, 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 that's where you get most of, uh, you know, whatever culture you grow up in, by the time you're 11 or 12, you know, it's, it's pretty deep rooted. So, uh, coming back down to the, the slow pace, uh, uh, and, and conservative nature of, of the South, uh, is certainly different, but it's what I grew up around. So it's not like it's, it's a culture shock for me. Awesome, man. Well, you know what? We're running out of time. I, I want to thank you for coming on. Now, now, what's your Twitter handle? Tell the listeners your Twitter, Twitter handle. Oh, the letters I, M, and my name, Corin Nemec. I am Corin Nemec, which most people think is for I'm Corin Nemec, like I apostrophe M, but it actually means Instant message, Cornemic, because it's Twitter, and you're instant messaging me on it. There you go, and you're very so, active. You're very active on Twitter. I am Cornemic. So people, instant message, Cornemic. Follow, him, and he's very active. And uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. This at Cooper Talk. Also, go to my website, uh, www.coopertalk.net. There's 554 episodes up there. You can also email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. I will get back to you. Instagram and Words with Friends. Yes, I will play you. I'm okay. I'm not great, but it's Cooper Talk 1, so go there. I post a lot of cool food pictures on Instagram because, as you know, when I had my heart condition a few years ago, I wrote that cookbook, Stop the Salt. You can go to www.stopthesalt.com. It's 120 low-sodium recipes, easy to make. No pictures that intimidate you. No big list of ingredients, just basic, easy cooking for one. So check that out. And also, don't forget, forhangovers.com, F-O-R-hangovers.com. 
go buy some blowfish, put in Cooper, and you get 20% off. So, people, please go check out Corin's past work. Follow him. I am, like instant message, I am Corin Nemec. And follow me at Cooper Talk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week. All right.